Greetings. Uh, it's been a little bit since I've been on here. I hate the people who do podcasts. I don't hate the people, but I hate the podcasts where people come on and say, sorry, it's been so long, guys, because, I mean, I don't know. You guys could be, you know, just listening to a bunch of these all at once and, and have no idea about any time gap or whatever. Um, but <clears throat> it actually has been a little bit since I've been on here, um, just because, uh, oh, you know, life and, and family and all that kind of stuff. And But uh, also I've been working on a... Um, a book, kind of in the early stages, the last episode I did where we had on uh, Michael Heiser is kind of indicative of, of that work. But basically the project has to do with the Old Testament and how Jesus saw the Old Testament and how a number of um, <clears throat> you know scholars and uh, Christian authors and writers and thinkers are seeking to uh, kind of disconnect the Old Testament from Jesus. And so I, what I'm kind of doing with that project is is uh, looking at whether or not Jesus would be in favor of that project and in what ways um, the Old Testament um, may or may not uh, connect or disconnect or have continuity or discontinuity uh, with the the New Covenant. So that's been a fun project and um, a lot of work, though, doing a lot of reading. Uh, reading, of course, the, the authors who are making these suggestions and then you know going back and digging into early church fathers and heterodox and heretical thinkers like uh, Marcion and so that's uh it's been interesting um and uh, I, I love kind of going back and and reading some of these older uh thinkers and, and writers because as uh, Neil Postman uh has said or did say um that reading is one of those things that frees us from the tyranny of the present that we uh, don't get stuck in, in uh, just thinking in the uh, the patterns that society the society that we live in wants us to think in, uh, but that we are able to step outside of that and think in the way that someone outside of our culture and time might think. So that kind of helps, uh, I think, us to be more humble about our own uh, cultural moment and uh, to be uh, more open-minded about other ways to approach the world and think about the world. So kind of in conjunction with this um, emphasis on the Old Testament and significance, I wanted to uh, dig into this passage uh, in Exodus 34. It's uh, 34 verses 5 through 8. That is, it's a pretty fascinating passage on its own, but what makes it even more interesting is that um, biblical writers later were hugely influenced by it, so it shows up all over the place. In, uh, in Old Testament uh, prophets and uh, historical writers and in the New Testament. And it even seems to sort of find its way in the DNA, um, so to speak, of um, the New Testament, even when it doesn't quote it. Um, the idea seems to be there. So I wanted to look at this passage and kind of this, uh, this idea of intertextuality, the way other texts use it and relate to it. So the, the background for this passage is that Moses has led his people out of Egypt by the hand of God. And by the same hand, he's been given the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. It's uh, these tablets which he subsequently breaks after learning that Israel had compromised their commitment to Yahweh by... And Yahweh, by the way, when I say Yahweh, that's just the Hebrew name for God or, or one way of um, uh, you know, verbalizing it, vocalizing it by making a golden calf as an object of worship. So 
uh, as a result of this unfaithfulness, God is sending punishment on, upon Israel, first by sword and then by the plague. And though Yahweh is, was willing to spare Israel and send them to the promised land with an angelic presence, he claims that he is no longer willing to go with them. This announcement causes both Israel and Moses great distress, and Moses pleads with Yahweh that his presence would go along with them, and that Moses, he might might see his glory. So God promises that, yes, he, he will grant both requests. Finally, uh, Yahweh asks Moses to chisel two new stones and to ascend Mount Sinai to present himself to Yahweh. And in what follows, God reveals his character to Moses using words which would play a central role in directing Jewish discourse about the divine being for millennia to come. And here's where we, we, we have the passage in question. And Yahweh descended in the cloud, and he stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh passed by before his face and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and great in kindness and faithfulness. Keeping mercy to thousands, taking away iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means acquitting, uh, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the sons and upon the grandsons to the third generation and the fourth generation. And Moses hurried and bowed toward the earth and worshipped. So first, some uh, structure questions. Um, we read in verse 5, Yahweh descends the cloud, and he stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name of Yahweh. So um, who's the one standing with whom, and who's the one proclaiming the name? Is Yahweh proclaiming his own name, or is Moses proclaiming the name? The view that Moses is the one standing with Yahweh and proclaiming Yahweh's name can be defended uh, with appeal to uh, other verses in this context, verses uh, 3321 and 342, which see Moses as the one standing and waiting for Yahweh. However, 346, the, the second verse that, that we're looking at here, it uses this word uh, karah, which would I translated proclaim again to describe Yahweh proclaiming his own name, seemingly as an expansion upon the proclamation of the name in verse 5. So it seems to me that it's saying Yahweh is descending in the cloud and he stands with Moses and proclaims his own name. And Yahweh passes by before Moses' face and proclaims Yahweh, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and great in kindness and faithfulness, so on and so forth. And that may seem like a uh, unimportant question, but I do think it, it factors in later. Basically, and the material after these four verses, um, we find that God does promise to go along in Israel's midst, but commands them to make no covenant with the pagans in the land, lest they be ensnared into the worship of other gods. He also, um, seemingly anyway, asks Moses to write on the tablets the Ten Commandments of the covenant he made with Israel. But, but really the question here, the first question that comes up is, is what is Yahweh saying about himself? Um, we learn that he is hesed. Um, which I, I think I translated as kindness, um, that, he's, um, that he's great in kindness. Uh, one popular translation going back to the 1535 Coverdale Bible and also employed by the NASB and um, ASV and the WEB is loving kindness, um, that he's great in loving kindness. Other translations include love, as in the NIV, unfailing love, the NLT, Steadfast Love, the ESV, and Goodness, which you find in the KJV and the 1917 JPS. You also see Faithful Love, 
loyal love and mercy in other translations. This word is, is hugely debated um, as to its meaning. Um, some scholars have pointed out um, its connection with something like strength, possibly. Um, some have argued that it has a context specifically related to a covenant, an agreement uh, made by two people like Yahweh has made with Israel or like one might make in a marriage or something to that effect. And we do see it used where treaties are, are, are made. So Abimelech makes a treaty with Abraham, for example, in Genesis. And Abimelech asks uh, that Abraham would show him the same hesed that he had shown to Abraham. But there are also places where a, a covenant uh, is not in view. So Jonah 4.2, for example, um, hesed is used to describe God not in his power, uh, not in a covenant relationship, but in his mercy in relenting from judgment. Um, so that kind of connects with this idea of kindness. Um, it's, it's tough to find one word that, that really encapsulates everything here, but, but I, I went with kindness uh, <laughs> because it seemed like a good one, a uh, good place to land. We also see that Yahweh is rahum, uh, compassionate is how I translated, and hanun, or gracious. Uh, both are used in Psalm 112, verse 4, of a man who is generous with his wealth and doesn't cheat others. God's rahum uh, means he will not forget his covenant, as you read in Deuteronomy 4.31, and that he forgives iniquity in Psalm 78.38. His hanun entails that he will hear the cry of those taken advantage of by those who have more than them in Exodus 22.27. However, generally these two words are paired together to describe God, probably following um, this pattern here. For instance, because God is both Rahum and Hanun, he will not turn his face from those who turn to him, Second Chronicles 30 verse 9. He did not forsake his people in Nehemiah 9, 17 and 31. He removes the transgressions of his people, Psalm 103 verse 8, and provides for those who fear him, Psalm 111, 4. And as, as we discussed, he relents concerning calamity in Jonah 4, 2. So these are all passages where both of those words are used together, and, and those are the effects of those traits in God, as far as how he deals with his people or other people. We also discover that Israel's God shows mercy to thousands, um, and in context this seems to mean of generations, but he visits iniquity upon the third and fourth generations. What's unfortunate about, about the phrasing here is that I, I think that people read that and they think of God as nasty because he um, punishes the third and fourth generation. But that's not really the point here. The point is that the effects of our sin are visited upon our children and grandchildren, but that God extends mercy much further than the punishment for our sin is extended. The, uh, the sixth century bishop, Paterius, highlighted uh, in his capacity as editor and compiler for Gregory the Great, various understandings of this passage in his day, including one which saw the transmission of original and parental sin as normative unless interfered with by baptism, though this doesn't explain the great difference in the number of generations receiving judgment and mercy, as well as the view that the children are guilty by imitating the fault of their parents. So he writes, Thus it happens that the sinful son of a sinful father pays the penalty not only for his own sins, which he committed, but also for his father's sins. Thus scripture says rightly to the third and fourth generation. For the sons can see the lies of the parents they imitate up to the third and fourth generation. 
I'm not sure if imitation is what's in view here because it doesn't really say that in the text. Although there is something about that that, that I think makes sense, um, particularly for those people who who work in areas where systemic and generational poverty um, is noticed, where um, often um, attitudes and behaviors are passed down the line. And so it becomes difficult to break a cycle of poverty, not only because of um, outside factors, but, but also because of habits and things that are, are imitated that, you know, uh, coping mechanisms and things like that, 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 that are witnessed by the children um, in regard to their parents. So, you know, I'd say that the mechanism for visiting the sins of the fathers upon the children can be contested, whether it's something that happens just naturally or whether um, God somehow sees to it that <laughs> the effects of sin or the, the, the consequences of sin are, are passed along. I think that the more significant detail here and the one that uh, Moses is wanting us to see is that God's mercy extends much further than his wrath. Sin may be punished for three or four generations, but mercy extends for thousands of generations. So in, in contrast, it's, it's much bigger. So the way this passage is used in other biblical material is really what, what I thought was interesting. We go to Psalm 86, 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness and truth. Which, of course, is a quotation of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Or in Nehemiah 9, 17, uh, where we read that the Israelites of the Exodus, quote, refused to listen, did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them, so they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Or Psalm 103, 8 through 10, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Or Jonah 4, 2, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. So all of these passages contain elements of that, that passage in Exodus 34. Psalm 86, 15 and 103.8 also use the exact phrase, uh, Rahum v'hanun, uh, merciful and gracious or compassionate and gracious in describing God. And though configured differently, both words also appear in the description of God in Nehemiah 9.17 and in Jonah 4.2. The former of uh, which actually recounts our passage's context of God's mercy to disobedient Israel in the wilderness. Psalm 103.8 and Jonah 4.2 also reproduce the concept, if not the exact wording, of God forgiving sin. God's long-suffering, uh, or um, maybe a way to kind of translate it more literally is God's long nose, <laughs> is praised in all of these passages. Um, and finally, though not displayed above, the description of a God who shows mercy to thousands of generations, even as he repays iniquity, is reproduced in Jeremiah 32.18, Deuteronomy 5.2, and Numbers 14.18. Although that also does appear in Exodus 26, or 20 verse 6, rather. Uh, and so that, that could also be a source for, for that. The fondness for the concepts and motifs in this passage extended past the period of the Old Testament authors and into the New Testament. Just as God descended in a cloud to proclaim his name in Exodus 34.5, 
So he also descended in a cloud to proclaim, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him, in Luke 9.35. Indeed, because God has declared his name through Christ's incarnation, we see his hesed even more clearly. The concept of sin and its punishment transferring to later generations, but mercy extending much further, is a key component in the soteriology or the salvation theory of Paul. In his epistle to the Romans, he writes that, quote, through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. But, quote, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, or super abounded. That's uh, Romans 5, 12 through 21. Paul sees Jesus as a second Adam, a new fount of humanity that the redeemed claim descent from, so that we may be among the thousands for whom God forgives transgression and shows hesed to, and not relegated to those short and decaying generations of those whom Adam's iniquity is revisited upon. Though the theology of God reflected in Exodus 34 and reflected upon in the passages which cite and allude to it does not contradict the notion that God punishes sin, it does contrast his desire to judge with his desire to show mercy to those who turn and seek him. The latter is much greater. This was understood by the Old Testament writers and prophets, but made even more clear with the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there are, there are some practical implications for, for this passage here. Um, so looking at it, I, I might ask questions like, um, how might this passage affect how I relate to God, or how a pastor might minister to his people? On the one hand, it serves as a reminder that God judges sin. This is relevant for how seriously I will take the call to follow Christ, knowing that there are consequences for my sins, both in this life and the next, even for those who may have at one time been delivered and in fellowship with Yahweh. On the other hand, it brings to the forefront that God is much more desirous to show mercy than wrath. This is good news for how we live in the day-to-day, -day, desiring to follow Christ, but remembering that we are not perfect, but God is still merciful. Perhaps this is why this passage was so influential for later Jews, including those who wrote or were quoted in Old Testament works. We find this passage reflected in Psalms and in worshipful celebrations of God's kindness, and also once in a not-so-celebratory exclamation about God's mercy to sinners by a prophet who wanted to see them punished. It facilitated genuine expressions of praise for a God who had not abandoned his people and whose kindness outmeasured his wrath. It's also good news for people that we minister to. God is not looking for an opportunity to condemn them, but is calling them to him to be loved. This impacts how we see them, how we treat them, and how we reflect Christ to them. If God appears through the prism of our attitudes and actions to be more wrathful than he is merciful, then we're not reflecting his light, but warping it. We serve a God who is great in kindness.